I'm Neil Curran. This is my wife, Jody, and we're going to kind of facilitate the discussion and look at looking at information this morning. Did, did everybody get the handouts? Everybody should have a copy of all the PowerPoint slides and a copy of this little brochure. May I ask you a question? Everybody got one of those? Good. Okay. Also, later, some people picked it up, but everyone else later at the break or something, you can pick up one of these booklets. We're not actually going to be going over it today, but it's for you to take. Um, it's actually, I wrote it to give away to somebody who's from a Catholic background. Uh, you read it yourself, and uh, uh, I'll talk about it later. But that, Get rid of all these things. Let me uh, let me open us in prayer. I may, okay. Father, thank you for uh, this beautiful day. Thank you for bringing us all together here at Watermark to uh, look at how we might share the good news with people from a Catholic background. Lord, uh, be with us. Season our uh, our talk with grace, our attitudes to people in and out of the church. Uh, just let us be friends. Let us be uh, faithful friends. Let us speak the truth in love. Father, uh, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for allowing us the opportunity to talk about Jesus with people in our lives and people we have yet to meet. Father, thank you. Uh, and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to spend some time today looking at Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Bible. We'll look at things from a historical perspective. We're going to look at things from a theological perspective. And we're going to look at things from a personal perspective. What does all of this mean to us as individuals? You know, there's a new pope in Rome. I guess we all know that. Uh... What does that mean to the future? And what do evangelicals think about Pope Francis? Uh, have any of you heard of Luis Palau, who's a great evangelist? From, he happens to be from Argentina. And he and Pope Francis have been friends for a long time. Uh, here's, he was interviewed in an article in Christianity Today, and here's what Luis Palau had to say about Francis. You knew that he knew God, the Father, personally. The way he prayed, the way he talked to the Lord, was a man who knows Jesus Christ and was very spiritually intimate with the Lord. He didn't do reading prayers, he just prayed to the Lord spontaneously. He's a very Bible-centered man, a very Christ-centered man. He's known for his personal love of Christ. He's really centered on Jesus and the gospel, the pure gospel. The evangelical community, uh, when they realize that he was open, he has great respect for Bible-teaching Christians. And he basically sides with them. They work together in Argentina. So the leaders of the evangelical church in Ar Argentina have a high regard for him. So Luis, Luis Palau, 
Lise was on, on the board of directors of Dallas Theological Seminary at one time. I mean, he's one of us. He's in our camp. He would be welcome here at Watermark, uh, I think. So, but that's that surprised me. I'm, I'm an old Catholic, you know, so uh, that, that that probably wouldn't have been true in previous years. Now, there's also there was an article in the Dallas Morning News last Saturday about the Pope reaching out to Muslims on Good Friday. He had a he spoke at a service, and uh, he called. He reached out in friendship to our Muslim brothers and sisters. That throws me in a little bit of a quandary. I'm not sure how to respond to that. Our Muslims are brothers and sisters, certainly not in faith. Uh, anyway, he also he broke with tradition, and uh, on Good Friday, and for years the Pope would wash the feet of twelve priests who were chosen to be the, the apostles and he washed their feet. Instead of doing that and cho- choosing, choosing 12 people, he went to a, a youth prison and washed the feet of 12 inmates, several of whom were women, including one Muslim woman, and he washed their feet and kissed their feet kind of radical departure from things in the Catholic Church that I grew up in, and he's actually taken a lot of heat for that within, within the Catholic Church. So uh, we really don't know what to expect in the future from Pope Francis, and is the, but I have a feeling the church is going to change some. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, you know, Catholic churches and Bible churches agree on many things. We agree on the definition of God. We talk about the Trinity, who Jesus is, the reality of heaven and hell. There are a lot of things we agree on which are good. It reminds me of the story of these three elderly women who were uh, in the park one day bragging about their sons, each one trying to outdo the other. And the Catholic woman said proudly, my son is a priest. When he walks into a room, everyone says, oh, father. Not to be outdone, the second woman, who was a Methodist, said, my son is a bishop. When he walks into a room, everyone says, oh, your excellency. The third woman, a Baptist, said, my son is a professional wrestler. He's six foot nine and weighs 370 pounds. When he walks into a room, everyone says, oh my God. <laughs> uh, probably not our definition in either church. But, you know. There's another story about a woman who uh, walked out on her porch every morning and said, praise the Lord. And every day her neighbor, who was an atheist, would shout back, there is no God. Well, one day she cried out, Lord, I'm hungry. I need some groceries. The next morning she found a bag of groceries on her porch. And she cried out, Thank you, Lord. And her neighbor jumped out from behind the bush and said, There is no God. I bought you those groceries. And the lady said, Praise the Lord. He not only sent me groceries, he made the devil pay for them. (laughs) I love those. Uh, 
where do we differ? We at Watermark, we in the evangelical community, where do we differ from the Roman Catholic Church? I think there are four areas. How do we decide what's right when we disagree? What's our real authority? How do we decide those things? What's the nature of the church and church history? We have some differences uh, in, in looking at church history. How do you get saved? How do you get to heaven? There's differences between what we would teach here at Watermark or other Bible churches, what, the, what we think the Bible has to say, as opposed to what the Catholic Church teaches. And can you even know for sure that you're saved? We think you can. Uh, those are things we're going to look at today. Let me introduce Jody to you. Jody is the North Texas speaker trainer for Stonecroft Ministries, Christian Women's Clubs, Christian Women's Connections over many, many years. Uh, she's a certified evangelism trainer with uh, Evantel and Sun Life Ministries. She shared her testimony and taught Bible studies all over the United States and China and Africa. Um, she and I have taught the Family Life Marriage Conference to pastors and church leaders in Africa and Italy and China. Uh, she's a wife, mother, grandmother. We have six grandchildren, two kids. Uh, both of our kids were born in New York City, grew up in New Orleans where we lived for many years, and then uh, they both live in the Dallas area now, which we're very happy about. Uh, let me introduce you, let her talk, my, to my trophy wife of 48 years. <laughs> He's been my boyfriend for the last 50. <laughs> um, we've been at Watermark only about a year and a half. Neil's been a pastor in the Metroplex for about 20 years. And uh, when he retired from that and started Biblical Communications International, we said, wow, now we can go to church where we really want to go to church. <laughs> Neil was in seminary with Todd. And so uh, we, we thought this is our opportunity to sit under Todd, and we have loved it here. We are so impressed with what he's done in this church, and the staff is incredible. It's been a great venture. And like I said, we run now Biblical Communications International, and that's uh, geared to teaching um, pastors and leaders in really third-world countries where they haven't got good resources. So we're supplying them in this computer age over the Internet for free. Um, Neil was, before he came to seminary, an advertising executive in New Orleans for about 25 years and a political consultant. Some people thought we were doing penance to come to seminary. <laughs> um, he also is an evangelism trainer with Evantel. He has a master's degree from DTS. He tra he's trained church leaders in Haiti, China, Italy, um, Africa. Uh, been a great blessing to the body. He's my dear husband of 48 years, and he's the author of Exploring the Basics of Biblical Christianity, which he was prompted to write to um, teach uh, lay leaders and pastors in countries where they've got no formal training. It gave him a burden for developing that book. And that's out of print now, but you can download it as a PDF on um, the Internet. 
and it's under biblical communications. There's uh, copies of both the books back there, and before you leave today, we want you to take one of the uh, pamphlets that he wrote called Biblical Christianity for Catholics. And that's that's the end of my introduction. <laughs> How many folks here were raised in a Catholic family? Wow. You know, I, I've taught this seminar, parts of, parts of it, things like this seminar, in several other churches, uh, Crossroads Bible Church up in the Flower Mound area, Bentry Bible Church up here in uh, further north Dallas. Um, and I think about a third of the people in Bible churches come from a Catholic background. Okay? I think it's like the first century when Paul was going around and he'd start talking to people in synagogues and he'd tell them about Jesus. They, were, they knew a lot about God and they knew that a Messiah was to come, but they, hadn't, they didn't know about Jesus. And I think there are a lot of Catholics who are kind of pre-evangelized. You know, as a Catholic, I knew a lot about God. I knew who Jesus was. I had not put my faith in him personally the way I have today. Uh, I think there are a lot of people out there, and a lot of people who maybe have left the Catholic Church because it, for whatever reason, and later in life start having kids and say, well, you know, we need to go back to church. And they look for a church to go to, and, uh, but they don't consider themselves Catholics anymore. I was a good Catholic. I uh, went to communion most of the time. I was, uh, you know, made my, my first communion, my confirmation. I was baptized as an infant in the church. Matter of fact, in my teenage years, I went to communion every Sunday for five years in a row, which meant that I shouldn't have any mortal sins on my soul. And those of you who are Catholic might relate to that. Uh, but one week, weekend was coming up, was Easter weekend, and uh, there's a rule in the Catholic Church that says you have to make your Easter duty. You have to go to communion on Easter Sunday, which was no problem. I went to communion every Sunday. But there's another rule that says you can't go more than a year without going to confession. Is that still true to you? I, I, I believe it's still one of the teachings of the church. But it had been a year since I'd been to confession. So I'm thinking here, as we're leading up to Easter, wait a minute, it's Friday. If I die on Friday, I'm going to heaven. If I don't go to confession on Saturday, then I can't go to communion on Sunday, according to the rules of the church. And if I die on Monday, I'm going to hell. I said, I don't believe that. If God is really that capricious, who needs him? I stopped being a Catholic that day. I didn't go to communion. I never went back to communion in a Catholic church. I continued to go when I was home with my parents. But I really wasn't Catholic. Uh, now, I didn't go looking for anything else because as a Catholic, I was told that the Catholic church was the one true Holy Roman Catholic church, and that's it. Everything else is sort of an imitation or a counterfeit. 
So I didn't go looking for anything else. I just kind of became a pagan for 20 years. Uh, I drifted into paganism. I always had a respect and a reverence for Christ, for God. I was probably a Christian pagan or something like that. I don't don't know what I was. But uh, God, when I was 37 years old, used uh, a breaking apart marriage to get my attention and Jody's. Jody married a very self-centered guy. And uh, we struggled after about 12 years of marriage and separated. And when we got back together again, probably more because of the kids than anything, and there were no divorces in either of our families, we got back together again saying, we got to make, we got to do something different. What's different? Well, we had both grown up going to church uh, with our families. So maybe we need to do that. And we started going to a brand new church in New Orleans, a Fellowship Bible Church. And we both came to Christ there and uh, turned our lives around. Audio working okay? Peter? Okay. Well, that's a little bit of my story. That's how I came to write Biblical Christianity for Catholics. was after I came to Christ at Fellowship. I said, did I miss this in the Catholic Church? Is, is, is this teaching part of the Catholic Church? Or did I just miss it? And so I looked for material that I could give to family and friends to explain what I believe now. And almost everything I found was offensive, even to me. So I can't give this to an aunt. She'll hate me. You know, it was talking about, you know, the history of the popes and, and just in a derogatory way about the Catholic Church. And I said, I, I can't, that's not the way I want to share the love of Jesus with people and uh, uh, to help them understand. So I finally, when I graduated from Dallas Seminary, I wrote this book with them. It's been published and used around the country and around the world. So uh, let's go on. This was a billboard on Tollway in the past year. Anybody see it? Uh, Catholics and Protestants, we both love Jesus. This is put out and paid for by a group of Catholics uh, trying to uh, make friends. We're going to look at exploring the similarities and the differences between what I would call biblical Christianity and Catholicism. As we look at Catholicism, I picture the whole thing like a tree is what we're trying to do here. What you don't want to do is pick at the fruit when you're talking to a Catholic. And the fruit, you can argue about Mary, you can argue about the history of the popes, you can argue about praying to saints, you can argue about is there a purgatory or not. You're just going to get into a fight. Don't do that. That's not the issue. Okay. Um, what you want to do is go to the roots. The roots are the Bible or tradition. What's the authority uh, for finding out the truth? What about grace? How do you get saved? Those are the big issues. Getting. I'll switch it now. I'm sorry. This one's okay. Yeah. I'll just do the rest of it. 
I'm Vanna today. <laughs> Testing. One, two, three. Okay, then we're back online. All right. We want to look at the key issues. Can you hear me all right? Is that back there? Okay. What's the basis for truth? Is it the Bible or is it church tradition? We want to look at the foundation of the church. Is it Peter? Did Jesus? Did God give Peter the keys to the kingdom? That's what the church says. Or is it uh, is the foundation of the church Jesus? How do you get to heaven? Is it through the rules of the church, or is it through faith alone? Can you know for sure you're going to heaven? We're going to look at all of those things. What's the basis for truth? What's the authority? Let's look at what the Bible says first. The Bible says, The word of the Lord came to the prophets. Thus saith the Lord. That phrase is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Every time a prophet spoke, he said, Thus saith the Lord. He would, they would, the books of the, of the prophets of the Old Testament start with this. And look at what Jeremiah said. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. Okay. The Lord put his words in the mouth of the prophets. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul wrote, All scripture, the entire Bible, is God-breathed. And it's God exhales, speaks the very words of the Bible that we have. Okay. Now, what does the Catholic Church teach? What's the basis for truth? A lot of us have heard the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You know, the word Catholic just means universal. That's the definition of, uh, you know, from the original. Um, but Catholic teaching about the Nicene Creed and about the church is a little more detailed than that. One, when the Catholic Church talks about there being one holy Catholic and apostolic church, it means it's unified but under the Pope. Holy. But the whole church and its teaching is directly from God. Catholic, universal from the time of Christ. Uh, we would use the word Catholic with a small c. Catholic Church uses it with a capital C. And really the technical term for the church is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that happened in the centuries. We're going to look at that a little bit. Apostolic, founded by in a direct line of human succession from the apostles. Our sources for looking at uh, Catholic teaching today is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which uh, came out after uh, Vatican II. Uh, first new catechism, complete comprehensive catechism, put out by the Catholic Church in several hundred years. Also, we're going to... Uh, and I have these books up here in the, in the front. I, those are my copies. Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. That's the textbook they use in Catholic seminaries to teach priests about what the Catholic Church actually holds. We don't have dogmas in 
at Watermark or in Bible churches. We have doctrines, things that we believe that we teach. There's a doctrinal statement for Del- for at Dallas Seminary. There's a doctrinal statement here at Watermark. But, but the Catholic Church has dogmas which must be followed. They haven't changed in centuries. Okay, there are Vatican II in the 60s, 1960s changed the look of a lot of things, but it didn't change any of the official teachings of the Catholic Church uh, and documents of Vatican II also there. Official teaching of the Church. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the Word of God, which is entrusted to the Church. Do you get that? Tradition, the teachings of the church, and the Bible are equal. They make up the teachings of the Catholic Church, of what's true. That's the authority. Uh, Later, hence both scriptures and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal feelings of devotion and reverence. The Catholic Church has elevated its tradition, its teaching to the status of the Bible. The church has always regarded and continues to regard the scriptures taken together with sacred tradition as the supreme rule of her faith. So the Bible is not the chief rule of, of faith. It's not the authority. It's the combination of that. Now, which is more reliable, the Bible or tradition? When it comes to the Bible, we have, the last count I saw, is over 24,000 copies of the Bible from antiquity, going back thousands of years, okay? Um, Jody and I were in uh, Dublin Castle, the the Warren Beatty Library there, has a copy of part of the Gospel of John that was written, carbon dated, to about 250 years after Christ. So John had only been dead 150 years or so. Now, if we had a letter from Abraham Lincoln in his handwriting, we'd treasure it. It would be important. We could say that's a real letter from Lincoln. This letter from John (laughs) is pretty close to to that. Um, So we have, and we have 24,000 of them. Compare it to other books of antiquity Anybody here ever hear of Julius Caesar? We've all heard of Caesar. He wrote a book called The Gallic Wars about the campaign where the Roman army took Gaul, which is France and Germany. There are ten copies of that book left from antiquity. The one closest to the time of Caesar is a thousand years old. And we have books dating within a couple hundred years of the time of Christ, copies of the gospel of the, of the New Testament. So 24,000 of them, not 10. So we have much more reliable evidence that the Bible that we have is accurate and what the apostles taught than we have of Julius Caesar even existing. So, um, archaeological discoveries. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls. They've been here in Dallas a couple of times. You can look at them, and and the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a cave in the 1940s in Israel. 
and they'd been sealed up in jars for 2,000 years. They opened them up, realized what they are. They're the Old Testament scriptures that are 2,000 years old, and they're basically identical to the teachings that we have in our Bibles. You know, the words are the same. So they didn't change over the centuries. The, the, the Bible wasn't perverted. It wasn't changed. It wasn't, uh, it's still reliable. We can rely on the Bibles that we have in our hands to be the Word of God. Uh, archaeological discoveries have also verified the authenticity of the Bible. We just heard some teaching on the book of Jonah, right? The children's stories on the book of Jonah. For centuries, people didn't think that Jonah was true, that it was just a big fish story. Because Jonah left Israel and went to Nineveh the second time. After he got swallowed by the fish, he went to Nineveh. There's no record of Nineveh. Nobody knew that city ever existed. There's nothing in the archaeological archives, no other records of the city of Nineveh other than the Bible until the 19th century, around 1870. Somebody was digging in about 150 miles north of Babylon near Tikrit, Iraq. And guess what they found? A city buried under the sand that a population of maybe 100,000 people. The walls were 50 feet thick. They dug it all up out of the sand. And you could ride three chariots abreast on top of the walls around the city of Nineveh. So it was there. It was a real thing, but there had been no record of it for hundreds of years. It had been totally wiped out. Um, So all of these things talk about the reliability of Scripture. Now, If I started with you, told you a little anecdote, a little story, and said, now, I'll just whisper it in your ear, and would you share it down here? And if you shared it here, and if you shared it here, you shared it. By the time it got to the end, it would be a different story. That's the way it happens. If you try that sometime in a a community group or a small group, you just share it. People forget things. They add things. They change things. To me, that's what tradition is. You know, we are given the word of God, and we know it's accurate. It's what the what the prophets and what the apostles wrote, directed by the Holy Spirit of God. We can rely on it. It's true. It gives us truth. It should be our final authority. Um, we don't want to wait until the end of this seminar. To, to, to have questions. Does anybody have any questions on any of the stuff that we talked so far? Maybe we'll be able to take about a five-minute Q&A time here. Hi. Hey, what is, is there a difference between the Catholic Bible and the Bible that we use? Yes, there's a little difference. And uh, that slide that I put up that said the last book of the Old Testament was written about 450 years before Jesus' time. The Jews didn't stop writing things. There were other books written in there. Those books we call the Apocrypha. There are about seven and a half books written during that 400 years of silence after Malachi. Um, Those books were never accepted as scripture, as part of the Bible by the Jews. Okay, The Jewish priests never accepted them. The early church didn't accept them. 
they were good books. There were there was some helpful stuff in there. Uh, it'd be like saying if we had a, a a book written by Billy Graham, it'd be a good book, or even Todd Wagner. But we wouldn't hold it up the same as the Bible. It's different. Uh, when um, Saint Augustine said those books are not part of the Bible, his good friend Saint Jerome who translated the Bible from the original Hebrew and Greek languages into Latin. He translated the Apocrypha books, but he said they're not the Bible. Okay? Not, until the fi- not until the 1500s of the Council of Trent did the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, say that those books, the Apocrypha, at the end of the Old Testament, that's where they put them and they said they are the Bible. Nobody else, the Jewish people, never accepted them as such. And so that's really the only difference. You get translation things, but nothing much. Okay? Is there anything contradictory in those books? Yeah, the question is, we're recording this, so we're, uh, let me repeat it. Is there anything contradictory in those books of the the Apocrypha? There are a couple of things that are, why they're there. Okay, why the why the Catholic Church maintains that they should be there. Um, there is a during that time period there was a, a battle in Israel between the Romans and the Jewish people, and uh, one of the Jewish generals prayed for his dead soldiers. Uh, that's kind of the basis for praying for the dead, praying. For where are, what happened to them? The development of purgatory and the development of praying for the dead comes out of the books of the Apocrypha. And, and th- that's really the only major, uh, those two things are the major things in the books that are, that are, it's why the Catholic Church keeps them. And why you know, we, we never did. The Jewish people never did. If you get a Jewish Bible, they're not there. But they're part of the Old Testament in the Catholic Bible. Anybody else? Here. Um, means put together the Bible, which essentially means the church was elevated above what we now know as the scriptures. Do you understand? Men put together the Bible, and the church was therefore elevated over the Bible. Yeah, okay. Well, let me see if I can address that. Um, men wrote as they were guided by the Holy Spirit. I mean, Matthew, John, Mark, Luke, prophets, they were, they were instruments. God spoke through the prophets and through the apostles, right? I was referring more to the compilation. Okay. Well, all these books were written. The last book of the New Testament was written about 96 A.D. at 96, yeah, A.D. by John, the book of Revelation. Now, there were other letters written. There were other books written. But the church, in the first couple of hundred years, used them, decided that, that, that which were likely to be 
can the canon? What which are the New Testament? Um, and in in the fourth century, around three hundred and something, and uh, the bishop of, in Alexandria said he wrote a letter on Easter, and he wrote the twenty-seven books of the New Testament. He identified what he what the church had basically had accepted. He was the first one to actually write that list up. He didn't he didn't make them the New Testament. He just identified what had been accepted by the church up until that point. So uh, I'm not sure. You know, the church didn't make the Bible. The churches in general identified what they saw that God, they identified the Bible. Go ahead. Okay. Well, too, it was hammered out in councils and codified and canonized. Yeah, it, it, you could call it tradition, but it, it really were various bishops, church leaders, scholars reading the, the, these letters and saying, okay, we agree. Now, is that tradition? Identifying the, the, the letters and the books that are saying this is, a, this is canon, this is scripture and then identifying that as part of the Bible, the word of God anything they, that wasn't that wasn't elevated what, what the Catholic Church is doing is taking its dogmas and its teachings and elevating them to the same as the Gospel of John so the book of the Catechism is elevated to the same as the Gospel of Matthew. No, it, it, it's not. But they're saying that it is. So, I mean, I'd rather rely on the Bible that I know is an accurate depiction of what Matthew and John and Mark wrote and Paul than something written in 1950 or 19, you know, later than that. Anybody else have one more question? We know who wrote the, who wrote the catechism. Yeah, priests, uh, scholars. Oh no, catechisms are new. They are a reflection of uh, the apostles wrote the Bible. People who wrote ex- trying to explain the Bible. Now there were church fathers, bishops, scholars, teachers in the first, second, third century. They wrote letters. They wrote commentaries about the Scripture. None of those teachings are elevated to the to the level of the Word of God. They were commentary. Even today, you can buy a book. Billy Graham has written a book. Todd has not written a book that I know of yet, but he could have. Hey, there's a guy sitting over there who wrote a book a commentary on the on the on the Bible. Put all the words of Jesus together in a book, right? Uh, so there are people. I mean, I've written a book on what I think the Bible says by what it means. Uh, from the teachings that I've had, but it's certainly not the Word of God, far from it. Uh, as a matter of fact, my book, because of that, about a third of my book is really just Scripture. I'm ex- trying to explain it and understand it. Okay, we got to keep moving on or we'll never make lunch, although <laughs> it's early yet. Uh, <laughs> the next big question is who is the foundation of the church? Is it Peter, 
Or is it Jesus? There's one key passage that we want to look at. Matthew 16. It's there, if you can read it in that small print. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is a title for the Messiah. It's one of the names that Jesus was called by, identified himself by. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? It's the question of the ages, isn't it? Who do you say he is? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, that is the key passage by which the Catholic Church derives its authority, saying that Peter, in effect, became the first pope, and, and all of the popes since then are just direct descendants from Peter holding that office. Um, Peter never called himself the pope. None of the bishops of Rome called themselves pope until like 400 years after Christ. So um, it's a title that, that, that came up. But let me show you what Jesus is doing there because actually that English translation is not very good. Jesus was making a word play here. Okay, He said, you are Peter. And the word for Peter was Petros. It's like calling somebody Rocky today. You know, saying, listen, you got it right, Peter. And he had changed his name from, from Simon to, to Peter. But Peter was a nickname. It was like Rocky. He said, you got the truth that I am the son of God. And I'm going to build my church on that truth. But because of that, we're going to have some fun, and you're, I'm going to call you Rocky from now on. But in that passage, he says, but on this rock, Petra, it's a different word than Petros. It means bedrock. It means the cornerstone. Okay, Jesus was saying that the truth, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, the way the Messiah is a Jewish word. The Greek word for it is Christ. So the fact that I am the Christ is what Jesus was saying. I am the Son of God. That's the truth on which we're going to build the church. The church was a new thing. There was no church yet. You know, but he was going to build it on the truth. We go on into Acts. Here's what Peter said later. Peter quoted Psalm 18 talking about Jesus. The stone you builders rejected now has become the cornerstone. There are hundreds of passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament where God is always the rock. You know, it's never a man. Peter acknowledged him as uh, God is the rock. So who's the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The truth is what Jesus referred to. He's the rock of ages. We all know the song. We know. Now, 
later in that passage in Matthew 16, it gets even more clear that Jesus wasn't talking about building his church on Peter. From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Peter, the guy who Jesus was going to build the church on? I don't think so. Um, the, the, use, looking at the words that were in the Greek that are the ones that we hold to be accurate, it's the difference between rocky and bedrock. It's the difference between Peter and rocky. You know, uh, Here's a key. There's a key slide I'd like you to look at. The New Testament consistently declares that the power and authority for salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone and not through Peter or any tradition or succession of men. The power to forgive sins was not in the apostles' position. It wasn't because they were apostles. It wasn't because they were priests. But in their message, the Bible, we believe in a succession of truth, not of men. That's a big difference between us and and teaching in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, Peter went on to deny Christ three times. We know that story. So... uh, Okay, now how did this happen? How did things change to get to where we are today, over the centuries? What happened historically to make Rome the authority that it has become? Let's look at the early churches. You've got the church at Jerusalem. It was the major church. Jesus' brother James, who wrote the book of James, was the head of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, until 70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? Anybody know? Rome destroyed the temple, took it apart stone by stone. Jesus predicted they would. Uh, but And the Jews were dispersed all over the world. They left Israel in great, great numbers. Okay, There was a great church at Antioch, which is now Syria. Uh, There was a great church at Alexandria, Egypt. It's where the great library was. Remember Caesar and Cleopatra and all of that story? Uh, The greatest library in the world uh, was in in Alexandria, 367. Another great church in North Africa is Hippo, where is Tunisia? Uh, Augustine died in 430. He was the bishop from from North Africa there. Rome is a great church. It, you know, it was the center of the empire. It was. Uh, it got big. It was, uh, you know, the watermark of, uh, of, of, of the, you know, those great cities. Another great. There were great churches in Constantinople, which was the eastern 
capital of the Roman Empire. Remember, Constantine moved to uh, uh, moved the empire, the head of the empire there. Orange, or Orange in France, is not a great city, but there was an important council there in 529 AD. Okay, what happened to all these great churches so that we were left with Rome? What happened to the church? What happened to all those churches in Alexandria and Antioch? And Anybody know? What happened in 570 AD? city of Mecca, Saudi Arabia, fell to who? Muhammad. And Islam swept the southern Mediterranean. All of the African cities, all of the Middle East, all became Muslim strongholds. The only city left of consequence that was a strong Christian city was Rome. The, and, and the Roman Empire fell. Remember Attila the Hun came into Rome and was going to sack it. And the Pope met him in the street and said, don't do it. And the Pope is wearing a big, tall hat, funny hat. He was, uh, if you're Attila the Hun, you would consider the holy man coming out to meet you like a witch doctor. Not that he was, but he would come out. If, if, if you're a, you know, a pagan Hun and this holy man comes out and says, don't do it, you're probably going to take them seriously. You don't know what powers he's got. But anyway, they didn't destroy Rome. And, and the bishop of Rome became even more powerful after that. And historically, all the other churches were gone. So everyone looked to Rome to teach the main truths. That's kind of what happened, how Rome got there. Let me look at There's a map of the Mediterranean. You can see Long North Africa uh, in Tunis that's where uh, Augustine was in Egypt Athanasius was a great bishop and then of course in Jerusalem up in Syria, Antioch and Const- uh, uh, all of those churches were gone, Rome was left as the major church ok, we've looked at the basis for truth Bible or tradition. I think the Bible is much more reliable. We saw that Jesus is the foundation of the church. And now we've seen that only Rome was left as a center of power by the 6th, 7th century. Let's take a few minutes more for questions. Any questions about the foundation of the church? Anybody have? Up oh, over there. Either one of you. Go ahead. Um, the question is, the Catholic Church has not, does not teach the Bible, usually. Uh, is it because they don't want people to know that it's contradicts tradition sometimes, right? Uh, When I was growing up Catholic, we were not forbidden to read the Bible, but it sure was discouraged. Uh, That's changed a lot. There are a lot of Catholic Bible studies going on. 
The Catholic Church embraced uh, the charismatic renewal. Uh, there were a lot of born-again Christians in that. Um, and they started reading the Bible. There's still Bible studies. You can go into a Catholic church, a Catholic bookstore now that are around, buy Bibles, all sorts of Bibles. Um, so I think that's changed. But I've been in a lot of Bible studies, and I think that's one of the best things you can do with somebody who's Catholic and you're trying to share with them. Get them into a Bible study, because when, when you start reading the verses, and we're going to look at a whole bunch of them here, when you look at those verses and say, wait a minute, that's not what I was taught. That's not what I was taught. That's not what I was taught. Years ago, Neil was sharing his faith with his mother, who was Catholic, and uh, she said, well, I can only look at a Catholic Bible. So he went to the Catholic bookstore, and he got a Catholic Bible so that he could share out of that faith. And uh, tell him about your footnote. Oh, yeah. I got, I got her a, a New Testament in large print because she was elderly at that point. And I looked at John 3.16. Well, anybody here know what John 3.16 is? Yeah. Uh, I read John 3.16 and it had a footnote explaining John 3.16 in the Catholic Bible. It said, when this verse says that, you know, you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life is not, has nothing to do with duration, how long it is. It has to do with the quality of your life. I said, what? <laughs> I was stunned that they actually changed the meaning of Eternal. John 3.16. Uh, that was me. But I, I think that's changing. And under Pope Francis, that may change a lot. I don't know. I don't know where he's coming from. And I don't know what it, who influences him. Another question here. Wasn't there a point in history where Constantine, one of the leaders, uh, said that our Roman faith was now going to be Christian and he just automatically made baptized thousands? Yeah. The question is, wasn't there a point in history when Constantine, who was the emperor, himself became a Christian and announced that everybody had to be a Christian, basically. And uh, he marched his armies into the rivers to baptize them. Now, to me, that's really one of the issues of how the Catholic Church, over the centuries, became the Catholic Church. What do you do with all these guys who have been worshipping Roman gods and things and Suddenly you say, all right, you're all Christians. How do you make them look like Christians? Best way to do that is to give them a whole bunch of, uh, give them a rule book and say, you do this. You go to church on Sunday, or it's a sin. Or else. Or you go to communion, or it's a, you go to confession. You, get, you give them a bunch of rules. It's, we would call it legalism, and, and, and we believe in grace. And so... Uh, I don't know if I know a more grace-oriented church than Watermark. Uh, I think we're very privileged to be here. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's what happened there. Anybody else? Question here. You said in the beginning, when Peter and James, at the very beginning of the Christian church, before 70 AD, were they called the way? They called the church? Yeah. The question is, uh, in the very beginning, before 70 AD, before the, before the dispersal, was the church called the way. Yeah, that's one of the, the terms. It wasn't until Antioch that people yeah. were called Christians. Church in Antioch was the first place that they were called Christians, which means Christ followers. 
Uh, I don't know when that, what the date of that point where they began called Christians. Yeah. Um, for a long time, Christianity was considered to be a sect of Judaism, which it was. You know, the Romans thought from the outside looking in said, oh, it's just Jews who believe a little differently than the other guys, and uh, without really understanding who Christ was. That, again, Jesus was the promised Messiah. Christ means Messiah. He was came to be the king of the Jews. That's why Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, right? Herod was going to kill him because he was going to be king of the Jews. He was afraid of him, so... That's an interesting thought. You know, when you're, Jody and I had the privilege of going to Egypt after a missions trip in Africa, and we are standing there at the pyramids and uh, looking up at them, I said, wow, when Jesus was here as a baby, the pyramids were already 3,000 years old. That kind of put them into perspective. <laughs> you know? Uh, another question. There's probably some basis for it. And now purgatory and praying for the dead comes out of Apocrypha, which is not biblical, although it's church claims that they're, it's part of the Bible. And we don't believe they are. The Jews never accepted them as part of the Bible. Uh, the question is, are the rules of the church biblical or completely man-made? Um, I think they're more man-made than biblical. Again, with good reason. You want someone to look like a Christian. You want them to act like a Christian. So go to church on Sunday. If you don't, you're in trouble. Go to confession. Learn, you know, behave as you would want a believer to behave, and life will be better in our empire. If I'm the emperor, I'm going to influence the head of the church to do those things. And really, through the dark ages, people didn't read very well. So, all of scripture was interpreted by somebody else for them. In my in my booklet, yeah. uh, no, uh, I deliberately avoided that. There are other materials. I've got some up here. John Ankerberg wrote a great little book. Uh, there's some other things that are show pretty contradictory things in, in on that. I, yeah, I didn't want to do that when I wrote this booklet because I, I wrote the booklet so that it could be given to a either a Catholic or a former Catholic who still had feelings because he had family members in the church, that he could give it to somebody and not offend them and lead them to Christ. The booklet was designed to lead people to Christ. The Holy Spirit will deal with the fruit once you're a Christian. 
if you put your faith in Jesus, Holy Spirit comes to live inside us, and he's going to deal with truth from that point on. And that's some, what I chose to do in my book. Some of that's covered in Exploring the Basics, though, the difference. Oh, the other book, yeah. yeah. There's some of those things in, in the big book, yeah. Uh, one more question? Go ahead. Oh, two more. Three more questions. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Not, 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 not until about the fourth century. Okay, so you can't trace the Catholic Church does. They, 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 they go from Peter. And tradition is that Peter ended up in Rome after the you know, before he died, he was in Rome. There's really not not a lot of evidence of that. Some people think he ended up in Babylon, where there was a huge Jewish population and and. and Christian population in Babylon. Uh, Paul was in, we know Paul was in Rome. He died there. But the church says that Peter was in, in Rome. And then the next head of the church in Rome, and I, I don't have the list, but there's somebody there. They have a list. Uh, no bishop of Rome took the title of Pope for about 400 years. They wouldn't do that. And, and there's some that rejected it said, I'm not the papa. I'm not the father of the church. I'm not the head guy here. I'm the bishop of Rome, which is heady enough. But uh, So, good question. You said that Matthew 16 was the Bible Yeah, the, their interpretation of Matthew 16 is where the Catholic Church derives its authority. Yeah. That, that was translated. I mean, you're reading it in English. You don't see it in English. I don't know what it says in Latin. I, when when uh, Jerome translated that from Greek into Latin, I don't know if there's different words in Latin. Greek, I mean, the fact that the New Testament was written in Greek is amazing. It's the most exacting language. Little nuances like that are very, very great and understanding what the meaning of, what did the apostle mean when he said that? What did Jesus mean when he said that? You get, they're, they're like the word for love in Greek. There are about five different words for love in Greek, and each one means a little bit different. Um, and and they're wor- that's the Greek language. It was very specific. So, You know, it's funny. We hadn't been Christians very long when we were sharing with a neighbor of ours, and he went inside and he got a Bible out, and he came back, and he read Matthew 16, he said, this is the first pope. And we're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> we got to go figure this out. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> there was somebody else who had a hand up here.
we're going to get to the baptism later. Let me hold it till then and remind me again in you know, that question. I'm not sure about they're, they're different. Different churches have different understandings of that. We believe, um, well, let me, let me hold that, about, especially about confirmation and the other things. Baptism we'll, we'll talk about, but okay. All right. How do you get to heaven? Catholic Church teaches this about how you get to heaven. Uh, if anyone says that the sacraments are not necessary for salvation, that without them men obtain from God through faith alone the grace of justification, let him be anathema, cursed, condemned to hell. That's us. That's watermark. Okay. <laughs> Do you understand that? I mean, I, I'm, that's, that's the Council of Trent in 1545 said that if you think you can say you're saved by grace alone and not participating in the sacramental system, you're going to hell. You're condemned right now to hell. That's pretty clear. Uh, there are sacraments. Those of you who are coming from a Catholic background, you know about the sacraments. How many sacraments are there? Ooh, good Catholics. What are the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church? Baptism. Confession. Confession. Communion. Confirmation, which happens uh, when you're about 14 or something. You become a soldier in the Matrimony. Oh, she's when you good. Get, when you get <laughs> yeah, anointing, the last rites, basically. Yeah, that's the seven. Yeah. Uh, holy orders. If you become a priest or a nun, that's, that's one of the sacraments, too. So, uh, and you have to participate. You have to work something to, to get to heaven. Let me look at another passage here. Uh, this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is necessary for salvation. You can see why parents get a little crazy. If they're good Catholics, they've been raised Catholic, and their kids leave the Catholic Church. Why parents get frantic. I mean, my parents were upset when I stopped going to communion, when I stopped being a Catholic. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Salvation is obtained by cooperating with grace through faith, good works, and participation in the sacraments. So by cooperating through faith, through good works, and participation in the sacraments, that's how you get salvation. That's how you get to heaven. Does the Bible teach? This is the verse that Jody came to know Christ on, through. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Let's all read it together. For it is by, by grace, grace you have been, been saved through faith. And this not, not of yourselves. yourselves. It, it is the gift of God. God not by works, so that no one can boast. boast. In our familiar John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Catholic Church is teaching about the sacraments, the Church says that Jesus died to provide a treasury of grace. It's like there's a big treasure chest filled with grace that happened because Jesus died on a cross for our sins. But if you want to get some of that grace, then you have to go through the church. You have to do the sacraments. You have to participate. You have to earn it. You have to earn. You have to do something to get get to the grace. We think that's pretty contrary to... Uh, this is a great scripture when you're talking to Catholic people. You just let them read it. What does that say? Uh, I want to look at the gospel itself. 1 Corinthians 15 is where Paul wrote the shortest definition or explanation of what the gospel is. What the good, you know what the gospel means? Good news. That's just, it's the Greek word for good news. So what's the good news? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. How do we know he was raised? He was seen by a whole bunch of people, up to 500 at one point. The gospel, the good news. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. You know, when you add something to the gospel, like works, like being involved in the sacramental system, like doing something, doing anything, you really dilute the gospel. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. It's getting more. Are we finally getting summer here? I mean, it's <laughs> supposed to be in the 80s for the next five days, right? I love Coca-Cola. I'll stop at a McDonald's or somewhere and get a big Coke. You know, usually it's filled with ice on a summer day. And I drive. If I'm driving around in my car for a while, in a little while, what happens? The ice melts, and what happens? It dilutes the Coke. And the Coke is no longer satisfying. It's kind of watered down, right? When you add something to the gospel, you're watering it down, and it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't save. If you're believing in something that's watered down, and I think that's what the sacramental system does to the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, I don't think it satisfies. One of the things we think you need to know, and that's why you all got one of these booklets. I'm looking at my booklet. This booklet's in Swahili. <laughs> <laughs> this one's in Chinese and English. Uh, we've used them all over the place. Uh, but we think you need to know a method of presenting the gospel. Jody, you want to? Well, I thought we were going to take a little break here. Let it... What time is it? It's 11 o'clock. We've got to go till 12. Yeah, let's take that 10, 15-minute break. You can go back up and get some food, drinks, bathroom breaks. I've got uh, five minutes to 11. Why don't we come back? Let's shoot for five after 11. No, you've got your, it's 10 to 11. Okay, five after 11. <laughs> we'll be back. Okay, thank you. Okay, we're going to get started again, and I'm turning things over to Jody about uh, presenting the gospel.
Jody? You know, I started out uh, my career in real estate, became a commercial real estate broker, and somewhere along the line, <clears throat> our management suggested we go and hear one of those canned presentations on uh, developing properties. You know, where you go and it was a desert, but it was going to be a paradise one day. <laughs> and if you buy this lot, you're going to get a great investment. And so over Christmas one year, Neil and I and the kids went up to a place in Mississippi. And they put us in a car and, oh, they gave us a free set of pots. That was another incentive to go. And drove us around the thing, and the guy had a, didn't miss a beat. And I'm just sitting there thinking, this is the greatest thing. You know, he seems natural. He's got this all down to science. <clears throat> I got to the end of the tour, and he said, Mr. Curran, do you want this lot or do you want this lot? And my husband, who I thought was there to listen with me, said, I'll take this one. <laughs> And I said, uh, excuse us a second, and I pulled him inside. But we didn't come to buy a lot. We just came to hear the presentation, get my free pots. <laughs> we owned that lot for a lot of years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But you do need a way to present the gospel. And um, having come to Christ through my brother, who had gone to um, Evangelism Explosion. Has anybody ever heard of that? There's one, there's one. Uh, D. James Kennedy developed this very intricate system of sharing the gospel, and you had to know a lot of verses. I've taken the course, but I never was very good at it. We used to, when we were at Scofield, we went door to door and shared the gospel through evangelism explosion. And the problem was, you know, you had all these verses memorized, but which, which one did you want to pull out for this situation? It was confusing to me. Neil and I learned, uh, when Neil was in seminary, Larry Moyer came from Evantel, a ministry right down the road from us. And his whole ministry has been teaching people how to share the gospel. And thousands of people have come to Christ through this method. And we're particularly fond of it. And we do a day-long seminar on the, the material around Evantel. Well, we're not going to do that to you today, but we are going to skim through it and let you see what it looks like. You don't need to be Todd Wagner and know a jillion verses and know all the situations from to be effective as an evangelist. But you do need to know some key verses. And the Evantel method of good news, bad news really works around four points, four illustrations, and four verses. And so we're just going to kind of quickly give you an idea of how that looks today and how it can uh, particularly apply to sharing with a Catholic. So Neil's going to be my dummy. You each have a little booklet. <coughs> you might want to follow along with that. And if you don't ever learn uh, another method or feel free to share with somebody, learn this. And you can even share this with somebody. You can hand this to somebody and go through it with them if you don't feel comfortable knowing all of the steps and verses. We, we, we had a seminar where we, with somebody in... This lady took the, the booklet home that afternoon and said, I need to practice with somebody to do this. And she asked her teenage son to do it. And uh, she went through the booklet. And at the end of it, you know, the boy said, you know, I don't think I've ever done that, Mom. He'd been in a church with her, in a good <laughs> church for a long time. And she, said, she just looked at him like a deer in the headlights. And she said, do you want to pray right now to do that? And she said, yeah, I would. And she led him to Christ right there. <laughs> just 
<laughs> reading out of the booklet. So you and we've had people this. leave seminars and go to lunch and share it with the waiter and lead them to Christ. So it's a good method and it's um, biblical and it's solid and if you'll take the time to spend the time learning these verses and method, it'll serve you well. Okay. So Neil, we've been talking for a while. Has anybody ever taken a Bible and, know, and shown you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven? No, nobody has. May I do that? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's good news and there's bad news in the Bible. The good news is about us, and the, I mean the bad news is about us, and the good news is about God. So let's start with the bad news. The Bible says that we're all sinners. Here, look at this little Bible or tract, okay. and read this little verse here. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, sin is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. If you shoot an arrow at a bullseye and you miss it, that's called a sin. And um, most of us have missed the standard that God has set for us. We've missed the mark. A good way to illustrate that is to say, let's go outside and pick up some rocks. We've got a lot of rocks around Watermark. <laughs> and see if we can throw it to City Hall at Fort Worth. Now, you might throw the rock a little further than me, but we're both going to miss City Hall at Fort Worth, aren't we? And that's what the Bible's talking about when it says we're all sinners. We've missed the mark. In thoughts, words, and deeds, we've just not been perfect. But the bad news gets even worse. Let's read this next verse because it's about the penalty for sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So if you work for me and I agreed to pay you $50, what would be your wages? $50, right? Yep. That's what you've earned. The Bible says that we sinned and we've earned death. And biblically, death means eternal separation from God. And since there was no way for us to come to God, God in his grace has come to us. And that's the beginning of good news. Christ died for us. So I want you to read this next verse in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And let me just say here, it's important for them to see these are God's words, not just something you're saying. So yeah. it, having them read it is a lot more effective than... You're reading it. Yeah, let them read the, the verses. Even, you can even highlight them in your Bible if you want to do that and do it that way. Okay, this is a great illustration. Suppose you were in the hospital dying of cancer, and the doctors would say, you only have a couple of days left. And I come along with a new machine from MD Anderson, and I said, look, uh, this is just brand new, and it's developed so that we can hook each other up and it'll take all of the cancer cells out of your body, transfer them to mine, while you get all of my good cells. So even above your objections, we agree, we agree to do that. And I take all the cells out of your body that are cancerous into my body. What's going to happen to me? You'd get cancer. You'd die. That's right. What's going to happen to you? I guess I'd live. I wouldn't have cancer anymore. That's what the Bible says Christ did for us. He took our spiritual cancer on himself and died on a cross. But he was God. So three days later, he came back from death to prove that he was God, to prove that he had victory over sin, and to free us from the bondages of sin. And so just as the bad news got worse, the good news gets even better. I want you to read one more verse that says, We can be saved through faith in Christ. 
Read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, <clears throat> lest anyone should boast. Faith really means trust. So what must you trust Christ for? For being God and for dying in my place, paying the penalty for my sins. You know, you came in today and you sat down on a chair. That's a great picture of what trust is. You didn't pick up the chair and test it to look who manufactured it. You just sat down. That's a picture of trust. Um, And we must trust Christ to get to heaven through no effort of our own. But you may say, I'm religious, I go to church, I'm a good person, I help the poor, I don't do anything that's really bad. Those are all good things. And um, the Bible says that God has prepared good things for us to do in advance. But you must trust in Christ alone for God to give you eternal life. And it goes on to say, meeting objections that people have and thinking carefully. And then there's a little place that, um, you know, in real estate we called it a closing. And you always want to do a closing. Say, is there anything keeping you from trusting Christ right now? No. Some people will say? No. Yeah. And so you want to pray with them. And uh, a good thing to do is to pray and let them repeat the prayer after you. So would you like to pray that prayer, Neil? Sure. It's about time. Dear God, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin deserves to be punished. I know that my sin deserves to be punished. I believe Christ died for me and rose again from the grave. I believe that Christ died for me and rose from the grave. I trust Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. I'm trusting Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. Thank you for the forgiveness and everlasting life I now have in Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness and everlasting life I now have in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, that's somebody you want to go on discipling when you have a chance and helping them to understand all of the basics. And there's some other little sheets in here that what do you do now and what just happened so that you're confirming in that person that they've made a decision to put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. One more verse there, John five twenty four. What? He who hears my word is... Oh, yeah. That's a biggie. So that's just a synopsis. Take that with you. Take some... Stick it on your mirror in the bathroom and in the morning. Practice. Commit to learning it and then ask God to open doors for you to share it. You'll be amazed at how he does that. One of the ways that we've found to be effective... Um, through Eventel, sharing with a Catholic, is when you get into a discussion with them, you have three, you can draw three circles, a W, W plus C, and a C. Now, the first one, the W, is somebody that says they're getting to heaven because they're a good person, they haven't murdered anybody, they do go to church, they do such and such. So if you're depending on works to get you to heaven, all the good things you do, then Christ's death, was absolutely unnecessary. Why did he die if you can earn heaven by yourself? Well, no, no, no. We have to have Christ too. So then you go to W plus C. And this is Christ's death. I mean, Christ's work. Your works plus Christ. So I'm depending on Christ, but I know I have to do all these things. You can't just not do anything, you know. 
say, well, if you're depending on works plus Christ, then you're really saying Christ's death is insufficient. It wasn't good enough to get you into heaven. And then the third circle is just the C. That's Christ alone. And when you put your trust and your faith in Christ alone to get you to heaven, you're saying, Christ, your death was sufficient. It's all I need. And you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone. There's some great verses that follow on your sheet. I'm not going to read all of them because we're running out of time if we do that. And you know for sure. Yeah, you know for sure. Council of Trent says you can't know for sure. Mm -hmm. He said it's the sin of presumption to actually believe you can know for sure you're going to heaven. That was in response to the Reformation, where Luther and Calvin and others in the Reformation said, you can know for sure. Look at Roman, look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says you can know for sure. You're saved by faith. Uh, okay, on the page 14 at the bottom, it's a, in a, this is a, just a, a verse you can just nail, put a nail mm -hmm. through and carry around with you. It says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither the angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's right, Romans right. 8, 31 through 39. Right, right, right. And that's very difficult. But I'm trying to catch up with you. Okay. <laughs> Okay, skip that. That's good, but skip it. Okay. Um, that's a great verse to use with a Catholic because they've been told they have to participate in the sacraments, they have to do good works, and that maybe they'll get to heaven because it's a presumption of sin to say you're not going to get to heaven, to say you are going to get to heaven. So that's a great key verse. Also, 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not guess, not hope, but so that you will know you have eternal life. God wants you to know that when you've trusted him and developed a relationship with him, you're going to heaven. And then on the next page, we have some things that Jesus said. He said, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Where? For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Do you see the security in those verses? God himself is telling you that you are secure forever in his hand. Uh, John 6, 37 through 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then again, Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 30, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. So do you know you're going to heaven for sure? Absolutely, according to his word. And then in Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, gives life. The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Free and free indeed. And Neil's going to talk about some of the key points in the church history. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Uh, Yeah, I want to look at some of the questions that came up during the break. Uh, People asked about some points in church history. We want to look at those again. Uh, Malachi wrote the last book of the Old Testament, 450 B.C., and John wrote the last book of the New Testament in around 96 A.D. Big point in, in the theological development of what the Bible means by what it says occurred at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Because St. Augustine, Augustine, uh, taught that salvation is solely a gift from God and that man is incapable of helping himself. There was a British monk named Pelagius at that time who said, uh, no, that man participates in saving himself. It's very humbling to come to Christ with empty hands. You know, what do you mean I'm not good enough to do anything to get to heaven? I think I'm okay, you know, I'm compared to Hitler or, you know. Uh, but the truth is, God, we're all sinners, and we don't bring anything to the table. A uh, hundred years after Ephesus, the Council of Orange in, in uh, France agreed with Ephesus and denied the concept of a spark of good in man a monk called Cassian who ended up he, he, he was kind of ostracized after this council and said go away and he went off and he started a monastery somewhere but that was really was the beginning of the monastery system in the Catholic Church and his little heresy kept going from there uh, timing in church history you know we were I was told again Catholic Church has been the same from the beginning, that nothing's changed. It's always believed what it believes. Uh, but the doctrine of purgatory wasn't approved as an official dogma of the church until 593. Prayers to the saints and Mary were approved in 600. Um, the first Pope Boniface accepted the title of Pope. He was the Bishop of Rome. He's the first Bishop of Rome to accept the title of Pope. Uh, there were some great bishops in Rome, Leo, a few others, the one who stood up to Attila the Hun. They would have died before accepting the title of Pope. They knew better. They, they wouldn't do that. Uh, College of Cardinals. We just saw the College of Cardinals, you know, and the election of Pope Francis uh, wasn't established till 927 as an official dogma of the church. Uh, celibacy of priest was required starting in 1079. Before that, there were two categories of priests, some who were married, some who were not. Uh, 
We go back to Peter. Did you know that Peter, the first pope, was married? If he was the first, he wasn't the first pope, but I said he was, he, he was married. If you look at in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, it uh, talks about his mother-in-law. Jesus healed her. Wait a minute. The pope is married. You know. um, and you go on to uh, the rosary was accepted in 1090. That's a big deal in the church today still. Uh, the rosary, you know, the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now at the hour. Pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. I can still remember it, you know, right? Uh, praying to Mary to intercede for us. Uh, I talked to somebody about it here. How did that, how did these things happen? Uh, you're talking about the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages in Europe where people didn't read. Nobody had, it's before printing. So to get a hand copied copy of the Bible, you had to be pretty wealthy to have one of those. So most people didn't read. They didn't have, certainly didn't have Bibles. Um, there was no printing press. Uh, the Dark Ages, if you wanted to talk to the king, the king had absolute authority, right, over life and death. The kings in France, Italy, wherever, the princes. Um, how do you get to influence the king? How do you get something from the king? Well, you're not about, as a peasant, you're not about to walk into the king's castle and say, hey, I need help, right? That isn't going to happen. But if you could find an intermediary to go to the king, you might. Well, wait a minute. I know his, the king's barber. He lives next to me. Maybe I can ask him to put in a good word for me to get something. Or uh, my mother plays bridge with the king's mother. Maybe she'll put in a good word for him. Who better than the king's mother to put in a word for him? Well, who better than Mary to put in a word for to Jesus? Who I can go to Mary and pray to her. I'm not... It's not like I have to go to the king of heaven, almighty God, and talk to him. That's pretty intimidating. And so through the feudal mindset of the Middle Ages is how the Catholic Church developed this concept of intermediaries, praying to saints on your behalf, praying to Mary on your behalf. Uh, you can see how it happened. It still doesn't make it right. Transubstantiation, a concept that the Catholic Church teaches that the bread and the wine that we have at communion actually transforms when the priest does his thing at the altar and the, the bread actually becomes the body of Jesus and the wine becomes the blood of Jesus and he is sacrificed at the Mass. So, not only did Jesus die once in great agony on Calvary, he is crucified thousands and thousands of times every day in Catholic Masses throughout the world. That's horrible. I, I, I mean, when you really think about it, why would that have to happen? Uh, 
Jesus, or in the book of Hebrews, it said Christ died for our sins and said it was finished at the cross. He died once for all time. Uh, and you think about it, if you take Catholic theology, there's a Catholic theologian who talked about that actually communion occurred for the first time where? The Last Supper. That Jesus actually turned the bread and the wine at the Last Supper into his body and blood. Wait a minute. He hadn't even died yet. So if communion is possible the day before he died, then his death was unnecessary. No, it wasn't. It was necessary. That's the whole point of the cross. Actually, when you think about it, they're denying the, the necessary quality of, of the cross. We believe that communion is a memorial. It's a picture of what Jesus did for us. We'll remember him. I love what, uh, how many people were able to come to uh, Good Friday service here at the church? A whole bunch of us. I love what Todd teaches. We both agree on it. I think it comes from Dr. Pentecost at Dallas Seminary. But he talks about every time you eat, every time you drink, remember me. It's not just, a, it's not a sacrament. It's not just a ritual. It, you know, in the Old Testament, they had dietary rules, right? The Jews had to, had to every time they ate, they had to stay kosher. So they couldn't drink anything. They couldn't eat anything at all, all the time. Every time they put something in their mouth, they had to remember who their God was. And he said, don't do that. Do this. And well, we don't have to do that. We're not under obligation to do that. We're under grace now, not under law. But every time we eat or drink, we should remember the sacrifice of Christ for us. We can remember grace. That's a great picture, you know. Huh? That's why we say grace. That's right. Um, other major dates in church history, in the Catholic, Roman Catholic church history, uh, at the Council of Trent, tradition was equal, equal to the Bible. Council of Trent was the Catholic church's reaction to the Reformation. These Catholic priests, Luther, Calvin, others, said, wait a minute, we got the Bible now, printing presses. People are getting the Bible. They're reading. It, we can't be teaching this stuff. This is contrary to what I read in Scripture. And the Catholic Church to defend itself against the priests who wanted to reform the church came up with the Council of Trent, and they codified it, some of these things like uh, tradition being equal. The Immaculate Conception of Mary wasn't declared officially by the church until 1854. Did you know that the church says that Mary was immaculately conceived? It's not talking about Je The Immaculate Conception is not about Jesus. It's saying that Mary was immaculately conceived without sin. That's totally unbiblical. There's nothing in the Bible. When, when Mary had Jesus, the baby... She and Joseph went to the temple and made a sin offering, which was part of Jewish law. So she made an offering for sin. To say that she was born without sin is only Jesus was born without sin. Uh, 
Next point. Uh, the infallibility of the Pope was declared in 1870. That's pretty late. <laughs> you know? And, and actually, for the Pope to, be in, to make an infallible declaration saying that this is right, this is true, and nobody can argue with me, he has to say that in advance. He said, this is a papal bull of infallibility that I'm making. He's never done it. it is, there's never been an infallible statement made by the Pope because he has to say it, that it is infallible. But the very threat that he has, that he can say that, nobody argues with him within the church. You know? uh, but that didn't happen until, again, 1870. You know, the Catholic Church teaches that Mary ascended into heaven bodily. She didn't die. She just went to heaven like Jesus did in Acts 1. That wasn't declared official until 1950. Give me a break. I mean, how do you do that? 1950? 2,000 years after she died. They're saying, no, she didn't really die. She went to heaven. There's no evidence. There's no grounds for that. Uh, so the Catholic Church teaches many ideas. I think many Catholics have no idea how the church has changed over the centuries. Talk about baptism for a minute. Infant baptism versus believer's baptism. I love the believer's baptism we have here at Watermark. you got hundreds of people being baptized in that swimming pool out there, right? It's great. It's really cool. Water baptism is a picture of what happens when someone has trusted Christ. It's a public identification with Christ. You know, the word baptism, baptizo in the Greek, is a, it was a, an industrial term. It, it had to do with dyeing. When you take a, like dyeing a piece of cloth and changing the color, you take a piece of cloth, you put it into a vat with a dye, and it becomes purple or whatever. It becomes identified with that purple. When, you, when you're baptized... You are publicly identifying with Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what baptism is. It's Again, it's a picture. It's an illustration of what happens spiritually uh, when the Holy Spirit... We're all... The moment you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes you with the Spirit. Uh, kind of interesting. This is the cathedral in Milan, the uh, Duomo. Uh, underneath the cathedral... The present-day cathedral is the site of the original church in Milan where St. Augustine, or Augustine, was baptized in 387. If you look at that, guys, that's a swimming pool. He wasn't sprinkled with water. He was dunked. <laughs> uh, we've walked around in there, and uh, I mean, it's a swimming pool. He was that's what the church was doing in 387 A.D. for the great Augustine. Indulgences. You know what an indulgence is? You paid money, you did something, and you gained uh, favor. You got, uh, 50 years ago when I was a Catholic, I remember mass cards. You could buy a mass card and you say you paid $10 for one, or you paid $100 and get one, a mass said by the Pope, and it took some years off of your time in purgatory or somebody else's time in purgatory. That was an indulgence. To pay for the building of St. Peter's 
basilica in Rome, the Pope had indulgences being sold all over Europe. That was really one of the big things that started the Reformation, that Luther went bananas over and nailed his thing to the door. Uh, and he said uh, uh, there was a guy selling Tetzel, the selling indulgences throughout Europe. And his little saying was, as soon as the coin in the plate rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Uh, a lot of Catholic people, I mean, I hardly knew any Protestants growing up. I knew one Protestant kid in elementary school. I knew more later in high school. I didn't go to parochial school. I went to public school. My, my city was, was Catholic, French Catholic, Irish Catholic mostly. But I didn't understand the, Pro, the Protestant Reformation. Protestants were just somebody else. The Protestant Reformation was founded by Catholic priests. They wanted to reform the church. Okay, so Calvin, uh, when Calvin left Notre Dame Seminary in Paris, his spot in the seminary was taken by, uh, what's his name, uh, Loyola, who went on to found the Jesuit order. St. Ignatius. I think... Uh, I'm not going to say it, but I'm, um, anyway, I, I, I love Calvin, and, you know, he was a, he's a great man of the Bible, great teacher. Uh, I think Loyola was not, but anyway. Uh, the Jesuits changed. The, the Jesuit order has been the stormtroopers of the Pope for centuries. They were the ones who really fought against the Reformation, and, uh, this is the first time ever that a pope has been a Jesuit. It's going to be interesting to see where he goes. And yet, I spoke well of him earlier. I'm hoping that he's a different person than, you know, as uh, Luis Palau and evangelicals in Argentina who know him speak well of him. Uh, the concept of mass card, if you buy a mass card today, I Googled mass cards the other day. I got a page of places you can buy mass cards today. Uh, you can buy them from St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. You can buy them at any church, really. Uh, it's interesting. The This one place, the Capuchin Mission Office, where you can buy mass cards, a mass card for the deceased. So you're buying, why would you buy a mass card for someone who's dead, okay? Except, again, they were pretty clear about it 50 years ago. You bought it to get them time out of purgatory, okay? Don't say that anymore. The church is, because of pressure from the evangelical church and, and Bible scholars, said, you can't justify that anymore. But, so it's please have one of your missionaries celebrate a mass or masses for the repose of the soul of the deceased person. Repose of the soul. What does that mean? For the rest, for the peace of someone's soul who's already died. So you want to, you pay individual masses, suggested offering $5, a novena of nine masses, $45. St. Patrick's has got a whole list of how much you pay for those. 
Compare that to 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I can't imagine anything more peaceful or more anyone more at rest more than being with Jesus. Why would I have to pray for someone to be at peace who's with Jesus? Uh, indulgences probably make me mad like Luther. I don't know, Calvin. Anyway, that's not what we... Sharing your story. Jody, you got about 15 minutes, 10 I'm minutes? Listening to go. And listening and I mean, these are the points that you get. Your microphone on? Oh, no. Okay. Not on? It says it's on. There it is. There Sorry. It is. Driving Peter crazy. We got one question here. A 50-year Catholic with 14 years of Catholic education has a statement, go ahead, <laughs> who had the good fortune of marrying the preacher's daughter. Guys, hear that? Catholic churches, for the most part, with the exception of the Hispanic church, which are empty, with the exception of a few parishes. You go to the great New York parishes on Sunday and. Say some of that again, because they weren't hearing you. Use that mic. And there's no attendance That's at, not on. At, at many of the metropolitan churches. So there are no Catholic priests coming out of seminary. Seminaries, by the way, for example, in the largest archdiocese of Chicago, last year graduated four preachers. Four preachers. Really? When I got out of grammar school, you couldn't get in one. So the tradition that we're really looking at here, the people that we're encountering are, first of all, people who can't defend their faith. The things that you talked about today in equipping us to witness to Catholics, they don't even know. Yeah, that's right. Right. Those of us who grew up as Catholics have a lot of inside baseball thought processes. And the key problem that a text that a Catholic has, in both a traditional and a current sense, it's a have-to religion rather than a want-to. All right. And there's gamesmanship, Neil, as you know, that always existed around the, the, the sacraments. Yeah. You selected the priest, priest, for example, to go to his particular mass he could get it done in 23 minutes. <laughs> Didn't speak a homily. Yeah. All right. Etc. Etc. Et I had a friend who drove yeah. 30 minutes to get to a 20-minute shorter mass. <laughs> in New Orleans. So what we're really looking at is something that's really kind of a phenomenon. All right. We're trying to witness to people who can't defend their own faith. And obviously, we have to be equipped from a gospel point of view. But the frustrating aspect of it is that because of the traditional regimes they grew up with, they're defensive about the indefensible. Okay. And it's really kind of tough. 
uh, in many particular instances that for them to overcome the fact, well, you know, I learned that this was the only church. You had to be a Catholic to be saved, et cetera, et cetera. And nothing out there has shown me does any better. So as we share our story with these particular people, we have to understand that, by the way, if they sat here today, a Catholic friend, they would have learned more about their faith and you're trying to equip us to interact with them than they already knew. And so consequently, you can't get involved in disgusting things. That's right. Like purgatory. That's right. Right. It doesn't make sense. All right, you can't get involved in trying to argue about things of why do you worship Mary. That's what I was just about to say. All right. (laughs) Because what you're really doing on that particular basis is you're putting them... On the defensive. On the defensive in the context that they're not really able to explain the foundation of that. Yeah. So sharing your story, particularly there's a lot of ex-Catholics in the room today. Uh, And by the way, in many of the evangelical churches, because I spent some time in in all these areas, 50% of the attenders are are ex-Catholic. Yeah, we we talked about that earlier. So what we're really saying on this particular basis is sharing your story is the most important thing that you can do, yeah. whether you're an ex-Catholic or not. I'm going right. to get back to Jody and let her do that because she's going to help us do that. My point uh, with all of this wonderful information about the rules and regulations and how they came to be is that's the fruit of the tree. Don't pick on the fruit of the tree. You know, go back. Uh, one of the early books I read on sharing with a Catholic said, always go back to the point with a Catholic. Did Jesus die for your sins? And they'll agree with you. Yes, he died for your sins. Well, he died almost 2,000 years ago, so which of your sins did he die for then? Well, he died for all of your sins. They know that. They know that. Keep going back to that point because um, God loves you, and he did it all. He did it all. Um, I mean... We had a, had a question earlier about, about a kid who knows his faith and says, Jesus didn't die for all of your sins. He just died for your, the original sin of Adam and that you still have to pay for your sins. Yeah, so. Well, I mean, but I agree with you. Sharing your story is probably the most effective tool you have with somebody that's Catholic, with somebody that's anything. Um, You know, last week, Todd talked about how we warm to stories of love and redemption, and that is so true. I I train speakers for Stonecroft Ministries to give a 25-minute testimony, and I have them write it out, and then I work with them until we get it to where it's um, basically just three points. It's your life before Christ, how you came to Christ, and what a difference Christ has made in your life. You want to do that clicker? No, yeah, because I think we, <laughs> I th- we have 10 minutes left. We, anybody okay. here have kids in, that they have to get out of child care? Over there. A couple of people. Okay. At 12 o'clock, if you want to go, just go. I, we're going to try and end at 12, but if, if we run a few minutes late, you know, for the child care. Oh, you also have a 
take a minute before you go. You've got, did you all pick up one of those evaluation sheets? Yeah, do Church it now before we up. spoil everything. <laughs> uh, okay, where are you? Okay. You sharing about your testimony? Yeah. You done? No. No, okay, go ahead. Can you click my next slide? <laughs> oh, yeah. Your life before Christ, how you came to know Christ, your life after. And you want to, you want to um, specifically deal with felt needs. And we all have them. You know, we all want to be accepted. We all want to be loved. We all want to be secure. So talk about the areas that you can relate to in your life before you became a Christian about felt needs. Did you feel insecure? Did you feel... Um, less valuable than you should have. And then you're going to relate that, especially in a two- or three-minute testimony, to the, the work God did in that. You know, I was extremely fearful. But now I have a peace. I have a security I didn't have before. So you want to, you know, in between, you're going to talk about how you came to Christ and how you developed a personal relationship with God. That's a key phrase. Um, deal with that. Take the time to write out your testimony. You know, several years after you become a Christian, you kind of lose sight of what it was that turned you towards Christ. Do you remember a specific verse? Do you remember a specific illustration that somebody used in your life? Share that with the people that you're talking to. Um, you know, maybe you're, what were your circumstances like before you became a Christian? How did you become a Christian and, and relate to those you're hardly ever going to lead anybody to Christ or share with somebody that doesn't have a felt need. And sometimes it's just a matter of getting to where that is. What, how, how, how will they express that? I've given you a sheet that um, is tied to this, and I'm not going to go over it today, but it's got some great quotes from some of my favorite books on evangelism. And um, Joe Aldridge talks about felt needs. Uh, probably one of the last books I read was Questioning Evangelism. And the point was that um, Jesus very frequently responded with a question from a question. You know, can you think of those instances? Well, they came to him and said, here's a coin. Do we have to pay taxes? And what did Jesus say? Whose face is on the coin? Rend unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Rend unto God that which is God. The young... Rich man came to Jesus. How do I know? How do, you're a good man. He said, why do you call me good? It's a very Jewish technique, by the way. <laughs> and I love the book because he went through illustration after illustration of how he drew people out in their questions. When you draw somebody out with questions, you're putting them on the defensive rather than letting them put you on the defensive. You know, you say there's no God, really. How'd you come to that conclusion? Just keep questioning because you'll find at the bottom of that the felt need that they have and that's what you want to address when you're sharing with someone so you have a you have a way to develop the go to present the gospel through the little eventel system but this is as valuable a tool as you'll ever have take the time to write out your story and put your key verse in it have that verse memorized if you don't have anything else memorized mine is ephesians 2 8 and 9 my brother went through that verse and he said, Jody, salvation, being saved, is really a free gift received through faith. Um, and it doesn't require any good works. And he read the verse again. And, you know, driving home, I thought, you know, if all I have to do to have heaven is to put my faith in Jesus Christ, 
I'm an idiot not to do that. And really, very flippantly say, okay, God, you can have this life. And it was a, a transforming moment in my life. And I got home and I turned to this man and I said, listen, I finally understood this and I'm going to heaven, but you're going to hell. <laughs> my first witnessing. <laughs> And about a year later, sitting in church, my husband accepted Christ. And, but he always thought he was a Christian because he was a Catholic. I didn't know I was a sinner, which is really funny if you knew me like <laughs> I know me. Yeah. Uh, loving ways to share your faith with Catholics. We've got to wrap this up in a few minutes, and we will. One of the best things you can do is invite Catholics to a Bible study with you if it's just one-on-one, -on -one. even if you have to get a Catholic Bible, you know, if they, if they have a Catholic Bible. And apparently uh, this is a great church that's inviting people to church. Yeah, <laughs> invite people here. Uh, the book of the Gospel of John, the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews are really intriguing books because uh, they, they're talking about Judaism in the first century a great deal in legalism. The Catholic Church can be called the legalistic church. It's got all these rules and regulations, things you have to do. When you examine Galatians and Hebrews, it's like lights go on. It's like, the Bible says that? The Bible says that? It's not what I thought it did. Uh, share the reliability of Scripture. Uh, talk about eternal security and assurance. Catholics don't know for sure they're going to heaven. I don't know if... I mean, Luis Palau says the new pope, Pope Francis, is a Christian. He thinks he's a Christian. Does Francis have eternal security? Does he have personal assurance that he's going to heaven? If he says he does, he's sinning, according to the, his own dogma. I don't know what he believes. I hope he knows, because it's woeful to me that and, and there are Christians in the Catholic Church there are people who are honest there are people at Watermark who are Christians did you know that? but there are also people at Watermark who are not Christians I don't even know if all of you guys are Christians I don't know where you are I sat in a church for a couple a good church like Watermark for over a year and I wasn't a Christian it finally you know in the middle of the song it finally clicked I said oh wow I'm a sinner I'm a sinner in need of a savior, and I trusted Christ right, at that moment. Um, if we're doing something right as a church, and Watermark is doing so many things right, there are always people here who are not Christians, some of them. In uh, the Catholic Church, I think there are a lot of people who are not Christians, and if they are Christians, they probably don't have eternal security. They don't know for sure they're going to heaven. So that's a very attractive thing to talk about when you're sharing with Christian. You can know you're going to heaven. Um, I'm on page 17 of our handouts. Uh, talking about having a personal relationship with God. You know, religion is man's way of reaching up to God. Christianity is God's way of reaching to man. Big difference. Explain saving faith, belief, trust. They all mean the same thing. Belief means different things. Again, I said I'm I believe Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England, that doesn't make me British. But I'm trusting, I'm resting, I'm in Christ to get me to heaven.
Talk about the resurrected new life you have. That's a concept that isn't discussed in Catholicism, if they know anything about Catholicism. Concept I had, we had dinner with a, one of my oldest friends, who now lives in Connecticut, but um, when he, he, he knew that we had become Christians, whatever that meant, he still goes to the Catholic Church. And he, one of the first things he said, now you guys aren't one of those born-agains, are you? And I said, well, actually, uh, yeah. Uh, let's look at, let me talk about uh, John 3.3, 3, where Jesus talked to Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. And explain what that meant, that we're all born physically, but to get to heaven, you have to be reborn spiritually. Um, that new, we, we acquire a new birth because of the resurrection of Jesus. He puts his Holy Spirit in us. You know, this is a quote from uh, Major Ian Thomas that I love. Christ gave his life for you so he could li- give new life to you so he could live his life through you. That's what this church is all about. I love it. Uh, I, why don't we, I'm going to hang around and answer, and Jody will answer questions, but let me close this in prayer. Thank you for coming. I appreciate you guys so much for, for being disciples who want to make disciples. You want to share your faith with people. You want to help them grow in their understanding and their faith of biblical Christianity, whether folks are Catholic or not. Just studying this stuff makes us all better Christians, you know, whether we're able to use it or help somebody. And remember, I've never saved anybody. God has used me to save many people. God's the only one who saves people. Uh, I want to say, okay, one of the best things you can do is ask people, if they're not sure, God's a God of revelation. He loves to reveal himself. Ask them to pray to him that he'll reveal himself to them. He'll tell them what the truth is. Love people, love people, love people. That's what we need to do when we're sharing the gospel. Do it in love. Serve people. You know, good deeds, helping somebody, loving them, opens the door to good news. Somebody may not be interested in what you have to say until they know that you love them, you care for them. People will know you are my disciples, Jesus said, by the way you demonstrate love to one another. And don't give up. Don't ever give up. Some of you have parents who are still alive or still involved in the Catholic Church. My mother was. She got cancer, and we moved her here from Massachusetts to live with us for six months. And uh, she got better and, and was going to church with us. And she loved Jesus. She talked about him. She talked about, but she was a good Catholic her whole life. At the age of 84, two weeks before she died, I was able to lead her to Christ. Don't give up. God is in the saving business. And uh, he, he, he touched her heart with that illustration about cancer. That if you had cancer and I could, if I could take your sins, my, your, you know, your cancer on my own body, I would. 
That's what Jesus did. He took your spiritual cancer so you could know for sure you were going to heaven. She trusted Christ that afternoon. And she died on Christmas Eve two weeks later and was immediately in the pr- best Christmas she ever had. You know? Amen. Uh, let me pray.